Yesterday I had the, the privilege, and it was a sad privilege, to go to the funeral of a colleague of mine that many of you will know, Bill Fairley. Bill has uh, sometimes covered for me on Sundays, and uh, was a fairly quiet and humble man. And I know he was often, however, very eager to help out. And I thought, you know, I, I like the guy very much, and, and I didn't know him really well, but I always enjoyed being with him and was grateful for his, his care and, and consideration that he would want to help us out. Uh, and so I thought I'd, I'd go to the funeral. So it was yesterday afternoon, and I thought, you know, I'd go there and it would be, you know, a small group of people. He was a humble person who didn't make his voice known in the streets. And I get there and at the cathedral, and the place is packed. There was nowhere to park anywhere close. It must have been absolutely about 500 people that were there at the service. And I, I wondered to myself, why, why is it that this was true? I mean, he was a person who wasn't really loud. He had two eulogies, and the first eulogy was a colleague. He had been a military chaplain in the regular forces for most of his career, and he spoke about his accomplishments, about the work he did with young people who had entered into the military, and talked about many of the things that he did as a chaplain and gave a personal touch to the work that he did. But it was the second eulogy that really struck me and made me think, this is why these people are here, because it told the story of, I think, what this, kind, this person's life was all about. Because the person who got up second to give a eulogy, William, said, I'm Bill's son. But you may be wondering why I have a different last name than Bill. And I want to tell you the story of how it is I came to become Bill's son. I was a child who was raised by a single mother who was a drug addict. And uh, I believe it was in, uh, in New York, but I can't remember the city, but it was in the United States when, when Bill was serving as an assistant in a parish, very new, a man in his 20s. He got to know me and my mother because although my mother had a really hard time doing anything uh, that I did, she was able to get me to school every morning and to church every Sunday. Bill got to know her and he got to know me. But at the age of 14, my mother had deteriorated so much that she was simply incapable of doing the most basic things necessary for me. Bill learned soon after that he would be, he would be moving uh, because he had signed up to become a military chaplain and would be going to Gagetown in Canada. But he took me aside one day and said, I'd like to ask if uh, you would like me to become your guardian and you could come and live with me. And at 14 in, in uh, that state, you were allowed to choose whether or not this new person would be a guardian, and so he did. Bill paid for him, while he was a single young man, paid for him to go to a school that could help him because he had fallen behind greatly. He told the story of how when he went to the dentist with Bill, it was the first time he'd ever been to a dentist at 14 years of age, and he had 28 cavities. After he'd been fixed up, Bill had paid for these things, he'd taken him to school, and he was raised. He eventually went on to Yale, and he didn't describe what he did in life, but he seemed to be well put together. I was really impressed by this, because you listen to that story, and you realized here was a young man whose trajectory of life was headed toward disaster. But because one man said, I care about you, I want to become your father, I will adopt you, and he did. He showed him love, and he changed the trajectory of this man's life so that what was going to be a disaster turned into a flowering and a growth and a person who flourished in every way. That was just such a powerful story about this man who did not win an awful lot of attention, but managed in his own quiet way to people to love them and to change their lives. And I was really, really impressed with that. Now, I tell you that story because today is, uh, it's fresh in my memory. It happened yesterday, that funeral, but also because today we celebrate the baptism of our Lord Jesus. 
And in many ways for us, when we look at baptism, and especially we look at the baptism of Jesus, it can leave us confused about what's going on. I mean, John the Baptist himself, when we heard here in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus coming to be baptized, John the Baptist, who gets the name the Baptist because he baptizes people, wonders, why are you even coming here? I I just explained to everybody, I'm not worthy to untie the the shoes of your sandal. You're the one without sin. Why are you coming to this place where people come to be baptized for the repentance and forgiveness of their sins when you don't have sins and you have no need of it? We're confused by this story sometimes and are tempted to shrug it off, but I believe it says something profound, not just about who Jesus is. It tells something profound about who we are in God's family as adopted children. Jesus is affirmed as God's natural child who was and is and ever shall be the Son of God, but he is also commissioned to go and do a task out in the world to save those that he wanted to make adopted children, you and me who wandered far from the Father. But through our baptism, we are affirmed as God's sons and daughters, and we are commissioned to reflect and to show the goodness of God in this world. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, about how it is that baptism, as shown by Jesus, shows us something about God's love for us and shows us something about the importance of our task and the meaning and purposes of our lives. Now, when I talk about the affirmation that Jesus receives, it should be fairly obvious that there's an affirmation going on. I mean, after all, what Jesus hears here is pretty powerful. You can imagine being there and hearing it. We're not told who uh, really understands this. Sometimes when God speaks, we're told people just hear thunder. We know from John's Gospel, John the Baptist himself hears these words coming from heaven, and he attests to it in John's Gospel. Um, But what it is that he says is, when Jesus comes, and Jesus says, why, uh, uh, John the Baptist says, why are you coming here? Jesus says, I'm coming here to fulfill all righteousness. I'm coming here because I am the person who is the ideal Israel. Just like after eight days, we're told in Luke's gospel, Jesus is circumcised. After 40 days, according to the law of Moses, firstborn boys are supposed to come for dedication to the Lord and his parents bring him. At, uh, when he, Jesus is just a tween, we're told in Luke's gospel that his parents bring him to the temple like every good Jewish boy is supposed to do. We find here Jesus coming to John the Baptist as every good Jewish person should do is to examine their sins and to have the sin because we want to live according to God's will. Jesus later goes on to do things like pay the temple tax. He's the natural son, but he still pays it, not because he owes his father anything. He's a member of the household, but because he fulfills all righteousness. He wants to do what a good Israelite does, and he models what a good, faithful life is. But what's so profound about this is that this person who knows, who has always been with the Father, he and the Father are one, John tells us. He comes up out of the water, and what do we find? we find God speaking incredibly powerful words to him. He says, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Make no doubt, those who are listening, have no doubt, Jesus, yourself, who you are, you are my Son. And there's nothing you need to do to earn it. There's nothing you need to prove in order to be my Son. You are my Son. And this is something I want you to know and something I want everybody listening to know. That's extremely powerful because, of course, for us, many of us, I think, as we listen to that, we forget that when, we, when God tells us we are his sons and daughters, when Jesus, after the resurrection, goes to his disciples and says, I'm going to my father and your father. When he says uh, to his disciples, how are you to pray? He says, our father who art in heaven, not Jesus' father who is in heaven, but our father, just as Jesus calls God by the intimate term father, We are to do the same when we're in Jesus. 
what a baptism is meant to do, it is kind of like an adoption ceremony. Just as I talked about how Bill was, was, was adopting William at 14 years of age, a child who had no prospect in life and was told, I love you and I will do so much to try and help you. We are told, very importantly, that we are people who no longer need to earn something, that we don't need to prove something. We don't, in fact, need to do anything in order to call God Father. In fact, we are told, uh, St. Paul tells us we can say, Abba, Daddy. <laughs> the intimacy and care that a child has and make the demands of our father, just as a toddler does, sometimes knowing they're dumb, sometimes knowing they're, they're, they're not going to be uh, granted. But with confidence knowing the father knows very well you're going to ask these things because that's what a child does for his father. And that's so important because so many of us, I think, do not think that way when we think about our relationship to God. As much as we say it, as much as preachers tell us that, as much as we hear it in the Bible, there's something deep inside of us that says, I know that's not how life usually works. And so although God says these things, when push comes to shove, it's probably not so true, and so I better hedge my bets a little bit. Right? In fact, it's quite the opposite. When God comes, and Jesus, I didn't come to call the healthy but the sick, when he tells stories, he tells stories of a prodigal son who does nothing to earn his father's love. In fact, had given his father every reason to reject him. He tells this story to say the father is looking out on the horizon and he is waiting. And when he sees his son coming on the horizon, that son has finally come to his senses before the son can make a speech and determine his contrition and say all the things that he's supposed to say. The father runs at him, puts a cloak, puts the signet ring of the family to say, you are a member of my family, kills the fatted calf, throws a great party, and without even thinking twice, just assumes this child is now back, he's lost, he was lost, now he's found, and he is fully a part of my household. That is what God wants us to know. When I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whether it's you're an adult who's making a conscious decision or a child who's done nothing, we know we come to it thinking of the many ways that we've failed. But in fact, we come not worrying about the things we've failed at because that's not the calculus that God makes when he invites us into his kingdom. He simply says, do you acknowledge that I love you and will you accept that love? And it's so important for us because you may be coming today even though you're baptized and you may wonder to yourself, am I really a part of the family that God says? Because after all, I've messed up. Maybe you have been yelling at your kids an awful lot. I can certainly relate to that. Maybe you were really cruel to your husband and to your wife lately. And you really feel yourself not to be fulfilling the vows and marriage that you made. Maybe you come here having looked at pornography. Maybe you come here having really messed something up and betrayed a promise that you made to your friend. And you sort of think to yourself, man, that is not... The conduct God expected me. As I mentioned, every time we have the confession, we invite people to confession not to shame us, but to say because this uh, God of ours, this Father of ours loves us, He wants us to draw close and He does not want our shame, our guilt, our fear to prevent us from coming close. What our baptism does is something that Jesus shows us in His baptism. That we have the right to hear these words that God says to his son Jesus and say these are words said to us as well because we are truly God's daughters and sons, not by nature, but by God's love adopting us and making us sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now that's the warm and fuzzy part. Jesus has been given an affirmation. He's been told he is loved and we are told we are loved and that is the part I always like telling, right? But of course, you realize if you grow up in a family, particularly if you would have grown up in a family in which you were living, for example, on a farm or a family business, 
Well, it's common now, but what certainly would have been true throughout most of history is when you were a child and you live on the farm where most people lived in agriculture and the farm until very recently, what you would have done from an early age was not play and stay at home while your parents went off and did all the farm chores. No, from an early age, you would accompany your parents. They would teach you how to milk the cow, how to get the eggs. They would teach you how it is that you're supposed to uh, sow the fields, how you're supposed to fix farm equipment. All these things are done to help them. But there's also something going on while you're doing it. They are teaching you how to run a farm yourself. If you have spent your entire life learning, growing up, knowing how to produce uh, good produce in agriculture, then you will be a person who is able to do it when the time comes for them to pass the baton and say, this farm is yours, or you're going off to settle and farm your own uh, land. This is an important part of what it means to be a daughter or son. As St. Paul tells us, we are heirs of God. That means we inherit God's blessings, but it also means we inherit the responsibilities. It's interesting here when we listen to Jesus, uh, be, or listen to how Jesus is told, I am your, uh, uh, you are my beloved son. These are, of course, wonderful words standing on their own. But it actually, I believe, is an echo of something that God said about what his Messiah is meant to be. We'd heard uh, earlier, our first reading was from Isaiah 42. And we heard the translation directly from the Old Testament. But it's interesting because Matthew in chapter 12 translates it this way, that very same passage from Isaiah 42. He says this as a translation, uh, chapter 12, verse 17. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he says this, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Do you notice how many parallels there are? This is my beloved servant. I'm well pleased with him. I will put my spirit on him. When Jesus comes out of the water, what does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what does he do? He sends down the dove, the Holy Spirit, to anoint Jesus. In the ancient world, in the Old Testament, when you were becoming a prophet or a king, what would happen? The other prophet would anoint you with oil commission you and you'll be on your way. When David becomes king, we find that Samuel, the prophet, takes him aside, he anoints him, and although he's still just a boy, he's still just a shepherd, he says, you're going to be the king of Israel. And why does he, uh, David know that's going to be true? Because the prophet of the, the Lord anoints him with oil. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit, and that anointing is an anointing not just of love, it is also anointing to a mission. Right after this, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, the very next thing we hear is that that same spirit pushes Jesus into the desert. And what's the first thing the devil does when he's tempting Jesus in the desert? He says, if you really are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. He plays on the doubt. Do you really believe what God said when he said that you are his beloved? And he says, if that's the case and he really is, why don't prove it? Prove it to me. Prove it to yourself. You can, you can do this. And Jesus says, no, because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know what's being tempted right there? He is tempting Jesus to rest in his sonship and the blessings of it, but to reject the part of the sonship, which is a mission. God has given Jesus a mission. He's not taken away his powers. He's capable of, of turning stones into bread. He does a, a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, turns a few loaves and fishes and feeds 5,000 people. But he does this to bring glory to God in the desert he would do nothing but bring glory to himself. And Jesus is challenged by the devil whether he really believes that he is the Son of God, and if he really does, in fact, he doesn't need to prove anything to Jesus or prove anything to the devil. Jesus simply does the mission he's called to. 
Later in Isaiah, that same passage that we heard earlier, what are we told that this Messiah is going to do? He's not going to cry or lift up his voice, make it heard in the street, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick will not quench. He's not going to crush the brokenhearted. Some reed that doesn't stand up firm when the winds come, but in fact flops and is barely there anymore, or the, the wick of, of a candle that's flickering and threatens to go out, he's not going to blow it out and despise what's weak. And he's not going to thunder at them, but instead gently and quietly will encourage them, bless them, comfort them, so that they might be no longer a flickering light, but a mighty flame. What is Jesus told next about what the Messiah is going to do? He is told that he's been given as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from prison those who sit in darkness. Jesus, we are told here, is a person who will be a covenant. He'll be a sacrifice poured out for the nation. We heard uh, John earlier, uh, he, he will say, or he'll say in John's gospel, John the Baptist will say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about the symbolism of the dove coming down. The dove is a sacrificial animal in which uh, poor people come and they sacrifice the dove when they can't afford a lamb. Jesus, he knows that part of what he is called to do is not only to comfort those who have uh, doubts and fears, he's also poured out as a covenant to die for his people. And he is called to bring light to those who dwell in darkness and to bring hope to those who are in a dungeon by bringing them freedom. And that's our mission. Our mission is to dwell deeply in the knowledge of our, our sonship and daughtership. And we dwell deeply in that, but also that dwelling means that we can be the kind of people who, when another person is discouraged, to look around and say, how can I, you, 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 you're a reed that's blown around by the wind, how can I strengthen you so you can stand up against the wind? Or a flickering flame, how can I encourage your faith, encourage your hope in life? We look around and we think to ourselves, you know, we don't have much to offer, but of course, what did Bill do? And, and I heard in that funeral, in some small way, made a difference to a little boy and changed the course of his life. What are we supposed to do? A person who has no hope, who lives in darkness, what can we do to help them say there is light because there's somebody who cares about you? What about people who are trapped in things, maybe cycles of bad behavior or cycles of poverty? What can we do to ensure that that love the Father has for Jesus, that love that the Father has for us, is a love that we reflect in our lives so that those who are uh, sheep gone astray, sons who are prodigal, daughters who are prodigal, to know that there's a place in the household because God is scanning the horizon. And in fact, you are like that father who is out seeking the lost one on behalf of our Father in heaven. It doesn't require that you be Martin Luther King. It doesn't require that you become the prime minister. It requires simply looking around at the circle of people around you, people who sit in the pews in this church, people who you work with, people maybe who you live with, maybe your own children or the mother or father you care for, and ask, if you're in darkness, how can I help you? Can I put aside some of the things I want to do and do something that you need? You have the opportunity to be the light of the world. That the light of all the universe, Jesus Christ, who shines in the darkness, can never overcome. If we open ourselves, that same light will work right through us like a prism and to shine brightly. Not because we're so fantastic, not because our wick is always burning with a bright light, but because Jesus burns through us with a bright light, and that's enough. Here's the last thing that I'll say. I mentioned how the, the dove was a symbol of sacrifice, but it is also something that I think even people who've never gone to church know. The dove is also a symbol of peace. Do you know why we have that as a symbol of peace? 
all the way back in Genesis. Maybe you remember the story from Sunday school of the ark, and the animals go in two by two as Noah builds the ark. And the rains come down, sort of like yesterday, (laughs) and sweep everything away, because God has judged the earth. He sees wickedness all around and wants to create a blank slate. And God's judgment after 40 days of rain comes to an end, but Noah's not really sure. Is there a renewal of the earth? What's going to happen? He takes a dove, and he sends it out. And when the dove comes back, in his beak is a branch from an olive tree. Ever since then, people have looked at that story, and they've seen the dove, and they've seen the olive branch as symbols of peace, which means that God and his judgment are over, and now God is turning the page, ushering a new age of reconciliation and bringing about a new earth and a new creation. I think that's going on here as well. The dove comes down to say a new age has dawned. It's not about measuring how many laws you've kept. It's not about your pedigree. It's not about the ethnic heritage you have. It's really about you being willing to follow Jesus and to believe him when he says, come to me, you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Because I know the Father, the Father knows me, and I can speak with authority about who my Father is. My Father is a Father who loves wayward sons and daughters and brings them home. When you struggle about your purpose in life, look back to your baptism and know you have an important purpose. When you struggle about your worth, look back to your baptism and say, God thinks I'm worth an awful lot, and that's enough. And when you despair and think, maybe I can't complete this mission, remember, God sent that dove, the Holy Spirit, to tell us that God has already determined the age is different. God has already determined things are going to happen. It doesn't depend on you. All he's done is that he says, you have the privilege of going where I'm going already. I'd say that's pretty good news. It's good news to know that no matter what happens, we have this symbol, this sign, this baptism to hold on to that can give us direction, remind us that we're loved, and give us the hope that not everything depends on us.